Good morning. If you don't know who I am, my name is Will Barkley. I'm one of the pastors, elders here at ECC. I want to welcome you this morning. Uh, I want to say welcome to those who are in Main Hall 2. I was there last week. I promise I will not go past the line so I don't get cut off here this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 58. Psalm 58. And while you're turning there, let me pray. We'll go to God's Word. Father, I pray that you would help me this morning to preach your Word. Father, we want to look into Psalm 58, which on first glance seems very difficult to understand, to know what's happening. And we pray that you would show us your Word, that you would teach us, instruct us, help us to understand what we are to see and how this Psalm brings much glory to you and brings much comfort to your people. Help us now, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the year 64 AD, there was a great fire in Rome. This fire began in the merchant's shops around Rome, and it burned for six whole days. The fire nearly destroyed the entire city. Actually, it burned over two-thirds of the city, totally wiped it out. And in the aftermath... Seeking someone to blame, the emperor at the time, Nero, blamed Christians for the fire. And thus began the very first great persecution against Christians. Emperor Nero was cruel as he pursued Christians. He had them torn apart by dogs. He would host garden parties in his villa where he used Christians as human torches. Other victims were crucified. He spread this massacre of Christians to every corner of the empire. And some scholars suggest that Peter and Paul were martyred during Nero's reign of terror. What is your gut feeling as you think about these examples of Christians being murdered? Do you feel anger? Do you feel sadness? Do you think that Nero deserved divine punishment to be wiped out? How would you feel if you were a Christian at that time in your home and through no fault of your own, you were being targeted? You were being hunted down. How do you pray in the midst of this kind of injustice? Does God care? Might be one of the questions you're even thinking. Well, friends, I hope you see that this morning God does care and has given us Psalm 58 in his word so that we would know how to respond how to cry out to him in these moments and see that he keeps a record and that he is our avenger. You know, there are 150 psalms in this altar. There are many different kinds of psalms, right? There's psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of praise, psalms of lament, kingship psalms. Psalm 58 is often referred to as an imprecatory psalm. Maybe you've heard that word, imprecatory. What does that that mean? Well, an imprecation is really a curse. It's invoking divine judgment. And so, imprecatory psalms are those that express the desire for God's vengeance to fall on his enemies. So perhaps you're asking yourself these questions as we do read psalms like this. How do I understand the imprecatory psalms? Should I pray the imprecatory psalms? 
Should I pray for vengeance against my enemies? How should I, or should I pray for their salvation? Which one? And how do impregnatory psalms reveal the glory of Jesus Christ? So friends, my aim is that you would see the glorious beauty of God's word in psalms like this, Psalm 58. That it is right to call upon God for him to bring justice against wicked evildoers, which he has done and he will do through his son, Jesus Christ. This is God's breathed, holy, authoritative, and necessary word for us today. So as we look at Psalm 58, we're going to move through in three different scenes. Scene one is going to be the challenge of the wicked, verses one through five. Scene two is the curse against the wicked in verses six through nine. And then verse, uh, scene three is the God who judges the wicked in the last two verses, 11, 10 and 11. So turn with me to the, uh, Psalm 58 as we read the text together. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a victim of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break their teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the, the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. So let me ask you again, what do you feel when you hear, when you read psalms like this one? Does it feel strange to hear these violent cursings in Scripture? How can this be in the Bible? Isn't God a God of love? Isn't Jesus' ministry one to bring grace and peace? Doesn't Jesus want us to forgive turning the other cheek? What do we do with a psalm like this? And if you feel uneasy about this language, you're not alone. Many people find it hard to reconcile these two truths, right? God is love, who sent his own son to die for us, but God is wrathful. He is vengeful. Doesn't this seem like a contradiction in the very character of God? Well, as we look at Psalm 58, we'll see that there is no contradiction between the God who is love and the God who is also wrathful. In fact, impregnatory psalms like Psalm 58 are yet another way in which God displays His glory, His ultimately the glory of Christ and His sacrifice. So let's look together at scene one in Psalm 58 in verse one. Psalm 58 begins calling out the gods, the rulers of the world. And David asks these two questions. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? 
David is addressing earthly rulers, governors, magistrates. These governmental authorities have a position of responsibility of judging and ruling, but instead of doing good and rightly caring for the people under them, they are misusing and abusing their power by committing evil atrocities. Verse 2 says, No, in your hearts you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on earth. What is he saying there? He's saying that these rulers, these authorities, they have not ruled justly. They have, from the very center of their hearts, devised wrongs. They are iniquitous. They're immoral. And from their hearts, from the core of who they are, their hands deal out violence on earth. So the wickedness of these rulers is not simply bound up into their character, limited to who they are. Because they have authority and they're ruling the overflow of the heart is violence, an unfair treatment, murder against their own people. That is the setting of Psalm 58, rulers executing violence on their people. Think of David's own situation as a faithful servant of his king Saul, only to be hunted like a dog because Saul's turned away from God, right? At some point, the kingdom is going to be taken away from Saul. David is pointed out as going to be the next king, and Saul starts to attack him. David actually has to flee. Can you think of another time in history when rulers have brought violence on their own people? Think of Hitler, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Stalin. The list of violent atrocities committed by rulers against their own people is really endless. I actually looked up the recent genocides from the last hundred years on Wikipedia. There's over 50 events of the United Nations considers genocide. Millions of people are killed by their own governments. Of course, it's not just genocide, is it? How about all the other ways that rulers would perpetuate violence against people? Until recently, my own country allowed unfettered access to abortion, right? Roe v. Wade made abortion legal in the U.S. and over 50 million babies were murdered in that time. This is not to mention even my own country's history with chattel slavery that is such a stain on the history of our country, my country. Think about your own home countries. Wherever you're from, I'm sure you can think of atrocities, persecutions, violence that have taken place not far from you. We see this especially in the church around the world, don't we? I'm thankful that we live in the UAE, where we have the freedom to worship, there's tolerance. But really, that's an that's the exception. That's not normal. Throughout history, in most parts of the world, Christians have faced severe persecution by the, by, by the wicked nations of the world. So what I'm trying to do here is raise your blood temperature just a little bit for you to think of situations that you would say, man, that is that is evil, that is unjust, just in case you don't have those pictures in your mind. There are wicked people in the world that seek to pour out violence on others, and God sees them. So in scene one, we saw the challenge of the wicked as they plan evil against God's people. In scene two, we see the curse against the wicked in verses six to nine. So here is how David describes the wicked. We'll go back to verse 3. Verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go 
astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf address that stops its ear. Verse 5 says, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. The point here is that these corrupt judges and rulers are evil from the beginning. Here they are likened to the serpent. This is the same word for the uh, serpent of, in the garden, right? It's a clear allusion to the seed of the serpent whose only desire is to make war against God's people. Notice in verse 3 that it's from birth that the wicked speak lies. Again, pouring, pointing to Satan's other name. John 8, 44, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are the father of the devil, and your will is to do the, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The very character of these rulers links up to the very character of Satan and his seed, the seed of the serpent. And these wicked rulers are deaf to any instruction, any pleas for mercy. Like the deaf adder or cobra that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of a cunning enchanter. There's no changing them. There's no reasoning with these enemies. They're on a course for committing violence out of their wicked, evil hearts. So if you're just sitting there for a moment, you're like, you know, I like this psalm. I like calling for justice against those evil people, like that guy who cut me off coming down off Fala Street. Just pause for a moment and realize that's not what we're talking about, right? You may be angry because there's a little bit of an indiscretion or a tiffle on the street. We're talking about people who are evil from beginning or committing atrocities. So given the situation in the psalm, what is the appropriate response? How should one respond to this total, unrelenting evil and violence threatening maybe your own life? Well, verses 6 through 9 calls for divine judgment against them. Verse 6 reads, O God, break their teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Notice that David is calling on God to exact this judgment, this violence against the wicked. It's not something he is going to do himself. In other words, it's up to God to act. It's up to God to do violence against his enemies. You know, breaking their teeth may sound like this incredible torture, but in the context, it's to disarm this wicked beast of a lion and serpent whose primary tool is to inflict pain with their fangs. David is calling on God to break their implements of war and oppression. Look at verses 7 through 9. Look at the images here. David is asking for his oppressors to be wiped out. These four pictures in these verses exemplify the wicked coming to nothing, being neutralized. He says, let them vanish away like water that runs away. When he aims his arrow, let them be blunted, right? The implement of war being totally made ineffectual. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Verse 8 here reminds us that they are corrupt from birth. And therefore, David cries out to God to end the effective reign of these evil tyrants by preventing them from even being born. David wants them neutralized. He wants them vanquished. He wants them defeated entirely. 
And David is 100% confident God will answer his plea and will bring his divine judgment against his enemies. So we saw the challenge of the wicked in verses 1 through 5. We saw the curse against the wicked in the second scene. Let's look at our third and final scene, the celebration of God's vindication. So look with me at verses 10 and 11. Why do, why do we desire that evil tyrants come to nothing? It's so that the righteous rejoice in God. Verse 10 says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, I will admit this is one of the harder parts of this passage, right? But this bathing the feet in blood is traditional ancient Near Eastern way of expressing utter defeat of the enemy, the wicked, and the complete vindication of God. This is military battle language. God has led his army against the enemies, the evildoers, and at the end of the battle, none of his enemies are left standing. Only God is standing, and with him the righteous. And his feet, they are bloody. It gives you a picture of, if you remember in the garden, the promise that was made of the seed of the woman, right? Right? There, there's the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent is eventually going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But what is the seed of the woman going to do? It's going to crush the head of the serpent. Blood's going to come from that act, and his feet will be stained. It will be an image of victory. So I asked this question earlier, how do we understand imprecatory psalms? Should we ignore this part of Scripture? Maybe this is one that you're reading to your kids at night, and you're like, I got to Psalm 58, I'm going to turn over. Should we politely put brackets around these psalms? We'll just never talk about it in order to keep us from praying something that is violent. I wanted to work through this text with you so that you have an idea of where I'm going and the best way to answer this question. But let me show my cards 100% up front, as I said before earlier. Psalm 58 is 100% God-breathed, inspired, holy scripture. And it holds tremendous importance for us not only to understand who God is, but also the very storyline of the Bible. Psalm 58 and other imprecatory psalms point to the glory of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we need these psalms in our church worship, in our daily prayer life, for the encouragement of all believers. When we think about imprecations, cursings, you have to realize that it is actually prevalent in really all of Scripture. Think with me back to Genesis 3. We just talked about right after Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit. God curses the serpent in verse 15 in language that is reminiscent of the curses in Psalm 58. Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Fast forward to Genesis 12 when God makes his covenant with Abram. God promises to make Abram's, Abram's name great. I will bless those who bless you, and I will, you guys said it, I will curse those who, who I will, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse, right? I will curse. I will bring imprecation. In Moses' song from Deuteronomy 32, 41, God promises vengeance on those who hate him. I will take vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. 
Just look at the book of Psalms. Well, there are a number of imprecatory Psalms, like we read in Psalm 58. Really, imprecatory sections exist in all, almost all the Psalms. I say almost all the Psalms. It's really everywhere. If you open your Bible and you point to a Psalm in the book of Psalms, you're going to find some section about curses, imprecation. Just take Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Yes, love that passage. I want to memorize it. I'm going to put it up on my wall. It's a great thing to remember, right? And then you keep going. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We're still good. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will be scattered like the wind. By whom? God himself. That is an imprecation. That is a cursing. Look at Psalm 2, 4 through 5. He, that is God, who sits in the heavens laughs, The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Friends, this is not just the Old Testament. It's also in the New Testament too. Matthew 23, 13. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, Pharisees. Friends, God's divine vengeance is a good thing. God ultimately cares about justice defined by Him and that no evildoer should go unpunished. And you you and I may think of vengeance with sinful connotations, but that's because we're sinful. We're told many places in Scripture to be at peace with all men, to repay no one evil for evil, right? And think of Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter 3, to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, Matthew 5, 43. I think that's true. But there's this distinction between our personal vengeance, the guy who cuts me off on Alfala Street, and divine vengeance. Personal vengeance is seeking to avenge ourselves against anyone who we think has done us evil, right, according to our standard, and that doesn't seem to be condoned anywhere in Scripture. But the verses I just mentioned clearly teach us that we are not to go out and seek revenge. It's not ours to take. Rather, it is God's. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That should be comfort to you. When you think about all the injustice that happens around the world to Christians, God is not blind. He sees, and vengeance is His. So here we have this clear instruction, this example in Psalm 58. Vengeance is God's responsibility, it's not ours. And as Christians, we take solace, we take comfort in the fact that we have a God who is just. And He will always avenge every injustice. 
So thus, Psalm 58 is not David calling for wanton violence against his personal enemies. This is David praying that God would come and bring justice, his justice, on earth against God's enemies, and that he would specifically end the reign of evil rulers. So let's ask that question. Should we pray the imprecatory psalms? Yes, we should. Imprecatory prayers are fundamentally a request for God to show up, right? God's presence in the Old Testament is identified with his judgment. For God to be present is for God to enact justice. He will do it. The very presence of the holy, righteous God is death to all who are not holy. And this is why there was such a pronounced emphasis in God's holiness, his, his otherness. He required separation whenever he met with his people. And this is, all, this is made all the more clear in the temple when they blocked off the Holy of Holies, right? The different sections of the temple that only the priests were allowed to go in. And there's this inner room where the ark lay, where God dwelt among his people. And God required this separation as a mercy to us. Otherwise, his holiness, he would have wiped out the sinners of the Old Testament, his people. We could not be in his presence and live. In other words, if you see God, see God as he's revealed to you in presence, you were brought into his judgment. Imprecation is therefore ultimately an expression of faith in God's promise to redeem his people through judgment of his enemies. Imprecation is biblically warranted for Christians. We want God's justice to come down, for him to be vindicated, and for the whole world to see that there is a God who judges. There's just one problem. Verse 3 mentions that these wicked rulers go astray from birth. They're born wicked. And you and I have the same problem. David notes this in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is the same author of Psalm 58. The wicked are born sinful from birth, and so is David. So when we pray the Psalms of imprecation, asking for God to show up, how is it that we ourselves are not the recipients of God's vengeance? Don't we deserve that same punishment? You may be thinking, well, listen, I'm not Nero. I don't even cut people off when I drive. I'm a good person. Friends, Adam and Eve deserve the full wrath of God poured out on them the moment they ate of the fruit in the garden. Disobeying God's one prohibition to them. You may be a, a nice person by worldly standards. But all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not only that, we, are rebe we were rebels. We rebel against God. So how can David, how can we expect God not to punish us? Well, for David, he is a terrible sinner. Right? In Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Here's the secret to imprecatory psalms. The wrath that is talked about in this psalm, the full punishment for sin that is promised on God's enemies, is ultimately poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. God has come down 
placed himself in this psalm, taking on the full vengeance that he pronounced on his enemies, on himself, instead. And this is why we Christians do not fear the presence of God today. We Christians walk as those crucified in Christ, already dead to our sin, and so the Son of God lives in us. Unlike the Old Testament saints of old, we New Testament believers, Christians, are living temples in which the person of the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. So we shouldn't shy away from the fact that God truly hates sin. He hates sin and the injustice that it breeds in the world. And you and I cannot hate sin more than God does. Nor can we be more angry at injustice than God is. These imprecatory psalms help us to rightly feel the weight of the injustice in this world and gives us words to cry out to God for him to show up and to make things right again. And the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross has purchased the rest of Romans 5.10, which says, I'll go back, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So in Christ... You and I, once enemies of God, have been slain, crucified with Christ, and we now live in Him. I love the line from the song, Jesus, Thank You. It says, once your enemy, now seated at your table. Every believer was once a sinner through and through, God's enemy, and deserved fully all the curses of the Old Testament, but it was on Christ. It was him who became a curse for us. There are no innocent Christians that are not covered by his blood, Jesus' blood. Nor will, be there, nor will there be some other means of redemption. It's only through Christ. Unbelievers, non-Christians will find salvation nowhere else. Either you come to him and his blood covers you, or the wrath of God remains on you. Imagine Christians in the early church hearing this name of a Pharisee called Saul. This zealous, uh, crazy man, eager to put to death anyone believing in Jesus, going around to the churches, identifying those Jews who convert what prayers do you think they offered to God about him? Were they imprecatory prayers? Did they cry out to God for justice, for deliverance from this oppressor, this one who was hunting them down, this one who was going to kill them? Justice or deliverance? God provided both. Saul later Paul, would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Either God is going to vanquish this enemy of the church and God himself, uh, by God himself, wiping him out. And let's be, clear, let's be clear, Paul deserved to be wiped out, right? He was murdering Christians. Or he will be conquered put to death in Christ. There will be no excusing of sin. There's no third option. Every one of us square, are squarely in the camp of being wicked 
being born estranged from the womb. We are all evildoers, serpents, vipers, spitting venom, deaf to any reason. We deserve to have our skulls crushed in, broken by God. But that curse that was meant for us falls on Christ instead. You know, we are really, Christians really are just wicked people who have been born again. We're dead in Jesus and made something totally new. We are those that deserve punishment, but ours have instead been fallen on Christ. So if you're here and you're not a Christian here this morning, I think you need to know this is how you should see yourself. Someone who was born wicked, and you need the mercy that comes through Christ. Unless you trust in Jesus, you are still a sinner facing the wrath of God. You need to repent, trust in Christ, in whom the provision of forgiveness was made. You can talk to any one of us, pastors or elders here, we'd love to tell you more about that. Maybe the member or the friend you came with would love to tell you about what it means to follow Jesus. Make no mistake, God will judge the whole earth. So in closing, let me give you four reasons why we need imprecatory psalms. Number one, imprecatory psalms resonate with our longing for justice. One author I, I read helpfully pointed out that perhaps we shouldn't call them imprecatory psalms. We should really just call them justice psalms. The idea of curses can be confusing in our modern sense, but we understand David's plea in verses 1 and 2 for the wicked to be held accountable for their injustice. So should we, when we see injustice in the world, when looking at world events or even the happenings in your home country or the happenings around us, we should cry out for God for his justice to be done and give up to him vengeance that he will enact it in his own way and in his own time. Number two, imprecatory psalms are prayers. Remember that David is not recounting the violence that he has taken against his enemies. He's not saying, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I have done. He's crying out to God. He said, God, you do this. God, bring your judgment, bring your justice against these evildoers. For God to come and act as David knows God will. David is essentially praying a version of that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. And so too, when we turn to imprecatory psalms, we are praying ultimately for God's will and for his justice on earth to take place. We know that these psalms are connected throughout all of the Old Testament, promising God's justice against those who do evil. We should pray likewise, asking God, God, your will be done. Show up. Pray that you would enact your justice on this earth. Number three, Imprecatory psalms keep us humble. As I mentioned earlier, all of us should have, uh, all of us should have been this object of wrath. Same way in Psalm 58. We deserve that. We're born in sin, and we are those who continually overflowed with evil. And maybe we weren't Nero, but we deserved that same punishment. We were enemies of God. And until Christ came and by his death ransomed us as a people for himself, we remained that way. So we need to remember that this is not a work of our own. That God 
saved us, that he initiated and saved us as his people through Jesus, his son. So imprecatory psalms resonate with our longing for justice. Imprecatory psalms are prayers. Imprecatory psalms keep us humble. Lastly, imprecatory psalms continue to give us hope. Continue to give us hope. Just as Jesus took the full weight of God's imprecations for all mankind, so all who trust in Jesus are made alive in Christ. We should pray the psalms for justice, knowing that the apparent enemies in our lives may tomorrow be our very own brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Paul was. That is another form of God's justice, isn't it? When a sinner is brought to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, they are putting on the death of Christ. They are crucified with him. They become the wicked one slain, only to be raised as a new creation in Christ. Every person on earth is wicked. It's just a matter of if you've been crucified in Christ, or does the wrath of God remain on you? Therefore, as Christians, this is why we can be persecuted, struck down, oppressed, have our homes plundered, be killed, and yet all the more we rejoice. God will perfectly work His justice. Either bringing our enemies into the family of God through Christ, or exacting on them the final punishment at the end. Psalm 58.10 says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. I just want to end with this final thing that we'll see at the end of time. Someday the saints, we will rejoice and see at the final day when the enemy, that final enemy, is vanquished. Revelation 15.2 says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not, who will not fear the Lord and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we long to see on that final day when all injustice, all wrongs have been fully righted. Help us to see that this word that you've given us is to encourage our hearts now, today. That though injustice seems to reign in certain parts of the world against your people, you see, you promise vengeance. And though we were wicked from birth, we were those who were serpents, evil, spitting venom, destined for your wrath, you had mercy on us. You poured out the ultimate curse on Christ. And so ransomed for yourself a people. May we glory in that. May we revel in the fact that once your enemies, we are now seated at your table. Thank you for this, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.